Good morning. How's everybody doing? We good? How y'all doing out the locations? Yeah, I guess you're good. I don't know. Welcome. Uh, those of you that are watching the locations, those of you that are watching online, wherever you're watching from or gathered here in the room, it is good to be together. How many people are excited to dive into God's Word today? Anybody excited? All right, good. It's not just me. God's Word is good, and I believe He has a good Word for us uh, today. We are jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, if you can remember way back in the day, uh, we were doing a, a, a series through the Gospel of Mark called Following Jesus. We started that series uh, in the fall last year and took a little bit of a break. Uh, but today we're diving back in and we're picking up in chapter 4. So if you haven't been tracking with us uh, over the last several months, then I would encourage you to go online and listen to those uh, sermons following uh, Jesus uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Or uh, do you want better? Just read uh, chapters 1 through 3 of the Gospel of Mark and, and kind of catch up. But we're going to dive right in uh, to chapter 4, verse 1. We ready? All right, uh, let's, let's dive in. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Actually, before we read, let me just pray for us briefly. Father, as we give you our attention, as we listen and hear uh, your word, God, we pray that you would not just speak to our hearts, but that you would work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. Talking about Jesus. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in, uh, sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So this crowd is like gathering because they want to hear Jesus. And so many people gather that he has to borrow a boat and kind of push out to sea so he can teach. Verse 2. And he was teaching them, <clears throat> teaching them many things in parables. A parable is just a, a short story that communicates a spiritual truth. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell, among, uh, fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, pay attention. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Now, Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. The, the uh, disciples, they weren't just asking about what the parables meant in general. Ma Matthew 13, verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, and some of us have had this type of question for God before, why you got to be so confusing, right? Like if you, you know all things and you can do all things and your word is supposed to be true and accessible and all that, why can't you just make this more clear? This is what they're asking Jesus about the parables. And so he said to them, verse 11, he said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that 
And he quotes from Isaiah 6, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Pause, Jesus. Time out. Let's, let's unpack this. Let me explain this for a minute, what Jesus is saying here, because when you first read it, it sounds like Jesus is saying, I don't want them to be forgiven, so I'm going to intentionally confuse them. Anybody else? That's, that's what this sounds like when, when Jesus said this. So, so what's happening here? And Jesus is doing two things. Number one, he's revealing truth to those who are willing to listen. He's revealing truth to those who are willing to listen. And that's why he said to the disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. They couldn't just naturally figure out how God was working out his redemptive plans in human history. And that's why the gospel is often throughout the New Testament described as a secret or a mystery. It's something that had to be revealed by God. So Jesus is revealing truth to those who are willing to listen. But number two, he's concealing truth from those who refuse to listen. It's not because Jesus doesn't want them to know the truth. That, that, that wouldn't make any sense. He actually came to reveal the truth, to proclaim the truth, to embody and demonstrate the truth. So what's happening? Well, we get a clue in what Jesus prays in Matthew chapter 11. It's not that he doesn't want people to know the truth, but look at what he prays. He says, I thank you, Father. This is Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. And here's the key. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. In other words, you've hidden these things from people who think they are wise and understanding. They overestimate their intelligence and their reason. They've exalted themselves. He says, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Not literally little children, but those who become like little children, those who, who humble themselves and become dependent and become receptive to what God has to say like little children. Verse 26, Jesus says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In other words, God, this is by your design, because in your kingdom, humility is a prerequisite for understanding. Amen. You have to humble yourself in order to fully be able to understand it. Here's the problem, and this is what Jesus is putting his finger on. Our resistance can keep us from understanding what God has clearly revealed. Some of you need to hear that. Like our resistance can actually hinder us from understanding what God has already clearly revealed. And when we resist God long enough, sometimes in his judgment, our hearts become hard and he will withhold further insight until we humble ourselves and turn to him. And that's what's happening in verse 12. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 6 where God told Isaiah he was going to send him to preach but the people weren't going to listen. They become so stubborn and set in their ways that they refused to listen to God. In fact, they were so stubborn that hearing God's word would make them even more resistant. And that resistance was evidenced 
of God's judgment against them for their rebellion. And the same thing was happening as Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so what is this kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? And why is it a mystery? Well, the kingdom of God in its most basic sense is God exercising his power and authority through Jesus. First, he's exercising his power and authority through Jesus, like in human hearts as he's redeeming and saving people through the person and work of Jesus, and one day through Jesus over the entire earth when he renews all things. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the ancient Jews, they were longing for the kingdom of God. So let me explain why, because if you're new to the Bible, you got to understand this context and how they would have been hearing what Jesus was saying. So you think about it. At one point, the nation of Israel had been a powerful and prosperous kingdom under God's authority and blessing. Read about this in the Old Testament. But that kingdom fell apart because of Israel's rebellion against God. And so the rest of the Old Testament is the story of them being ruled and exploited by one pagan kingdom after another. And in generation after generation, God kept sending a consistent promise through different prophets. What was the promise? It was the promise that he was going to send a Messiah who would rescue his people and reign over the kingdom of God. Now, fast forward, first century, you're Jewish, you're living under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. You would be longing for the day when the Messiah would show up and overthrow the pagans and restore Israel back to its glory days. They were expecting a prestigious leader who would establish a political kingdom. So that helps us understand a little bit more why they had such a difficult time believing that Jesus was the Messiah, because everything about Jesus seemed to contradict what they expected. You think about how Jesus grew up. He didn't grow up in prominence. He grew up in Nazareth of all places, an insignificant town, in a, in a lower class family, the son of a carpenter. Think about his ministry. Like his ministry didn't look like what you would expect for the holy Messiah of God because Jesus associated with people who were considered unclean. They were considered condemned by God. Lepers and Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors and prostitutes. Think about his teaching. Like he claimed to have more authority than the scribes, more authority than even Moses. He even had the audacity to claim that he was equal with God the Father. So there's no way Jesus could be the Messiah. And if there were any doubts about that, it seems to be definitely confirmed when Jesus died. Case closed. The Messiah was supposed to conquer the Romans, not be crucified by them. See, they understood how God would one day reestablish his kingdom or that he would one day reestablish his kingdom. But listen, they misunderstood how. 
And the secret of the kingdom is the fact that God is establishing his kingdom through Jesus. Not through human strength, but through what appears to be weakness. Not through human wisdom, but through what appears to be foolish. Not by force, but by love. Not by dominating his enemies, but by dying for them. Jesus does not come and demand a crown. Jesus comes and dies on a cross. And from a purely human perspective, that makes no sense. It doesn't, it don't make sense to the Gentiles. It don't make sense to the Jews. It doesn't make sense to anybody. It is foolishness and it is weakness. And this is the key to the entire parable. They could not see who Jesus really was because they were so bent on resisting who Jesus revealed himself to be. This is what the gospel does. It draws some people in and it pushes other people away. The same gospel, different effects. Same parables, different effects, different responses. Let me ask you, have you ever met somebody who's so biased that they can't even see the issue clearly? You can't even argue with these people. It's nervous laughter. I understand. I understand, right? They're too close. Too close. Well, Pastor J.D. Greer had the perfect analogy. I could not think of a better way to illustrate it, so I just got to read what he said. He said, this is like LeBron James fans. I'm just reading what he said. You know what I mean? <laughs> You've met these people, right? And this is what he said. He said, if, if LeBron James has a low-scoring game, they say, what an unselfish player to let his other teammates score. If LeBron James goes zero for 15 from the field, they say only an elite player of incredible confidence would keep shooting after missing 14 straight shots. He's the GOAT. If LeBron James punches another player in the face, they say he's just got such a passion for the game and touch is his love language. <laughs> you can't argue with these people. Like we've all met that person. And here's the thing. We see this happening in more serious ways all throughout our society today. Our biases can blind us to the truth. Don't you see this? I was talking to Gabe, our music director, who's playing keyboard. We were, we were out at lunch, and he had the perfect description. He's like, this is the mantra of so much of what's happening in our culture. He said, so many people in our culture right now, their mantra is, I can't hear the truth because I'm right. And that's what Jesus is confronting with his parables. That's what the gospel confronts in us. It forces us to make a decision. Will I humble myself before Jesus or exalt myself above Jesus? It forces us to make a decision, and some of you need to hear this. It forces you to decide, will I trust Jesus based on what I do understand, or will I reject Jesus because of what I don't understand? Let me say it again, because some of you are exploring Christianity, some of you are wrestling with some things, and this is what you got to wrestle with. The gospel confronts you. It forces you to make a decision. Will you trust Jesus based on what you do understand? what he has already revealed? Or will you reject Jesus because of what you don't yet understand? The first one requires you to humble yourself. And you actually see this illustrated in the disciples. 
they don't understand the parable either. I mean, in fact, as you read through the Gospel of Mark, there's a lot of things that they don't understand. So if you have doubts and questions, that should actually encourage you. There were so many things that the disciples did not yet understand, and Jesus drew them close, and they knew enough to trust Jesus when they didn't understand. So verse 13, Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? He didn't like push them away. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And he goes on to explain what many call the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. Many of you have heard this before. You're familiar with it before. And most of the times when you read about the parable of the soils, or you hear a sermon about it, what people will do, they will label the four soils because the soils represent the human heart, represent our receptivity to to God's word, to the gospel. And so they'll label the four soils, the hard heart, the the superficial or the shallow heart, the divided heart, and then the humble heart or or the fruitful heart. But I want to label those four categories of people a little bit differently. And here's why. Because because the way you respond to Jesus is really going to depend on how you see Jesus. I'm talking to you, the non-Christian, the person who has questions. Like, Like the way you respond to Jesus is going to depend on the way you see Jesus. And not just for those who are not Christians, even for those of us who are followers of Jesus. When you hear something from God's word, something that's hard, something that that demands something of you, something that that, that you don't want to do, God calls you to do something that you don't want to do. How you respond to Jesus is going to depend on how you view Jesus. And so let's walk through these four things. Here's the first thing. For some people, Jesus is irrelevant. Like for some of you, Jesus is is irrelevant. Like maybe you're somewhat interested or maybe you just came because somebody invited you and you were just doing them a solid and coming to church with them. But Jesus is kind of irrelevant to you. And that's the hard heart. So look at what Jesus says in verse 14. It says, the sower sows the word. This is Jesus. What did he come to do? Jesus came to sow the word. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And these are the ones, verse 15, along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear the word, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are people who are not at all receptive to Jesus. And that's some of you. Hearing, never perceiving. In one ear, out the other. It's irrelevant. It's not that you necessarily disagree with everything that Jesus says. Like there are some things that you can appreciate about Jesus. You can see some beauty in some of the things that he taught. You can resonate with what he says about peace and you can resonate with what he says about love and and kindness and and, and what what he, you can resonate with some of the things that Jesus talks about, of course, but you reject the idea that he has actual authority over you. That all of his words should dictate all of your life. 
You don't trust him to tell you what to believe and how to live. And so whenever you hear something from God's word that you disagree with, you disregard it. That's the hard heart. And Jesus says that this isn't just an intellectual hardness. This is a deeper spiritual hardness that Satan is actively taking advantage of. And that's not to belittle your doubts or to minimize your legitimate questions about Christianity. That's just to say that when you've hardened yourself toward Jesus, rather than humbling yourself before him, Satan will make your doubts seem absolutely insurmountable. Or he'll flood you with so many distractions that the gospel just seems irrelevant. He will do whatever he can to keep the goodness of God's word from sinking into your heart. It's not that you don't hear God's word. It's that the goodness and the wisdom of his word does not sink into your heart. His goal is to get you to the point where your heart becomes so hard that you not only resist Jesus, but you even begin to resent him like Satan does. Where you don't just see him as irrelevant, but you might even begin to see him and his teachings as repulsive. And this is exactly what we saw earlier in, this, in chapter 3, where Jesus was teaching and casting out demons. And rather than embrace his teaching and marvel at his authority, the Pharisees doubled down on their resistance, and they said Jesus was actually casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus warns them that perpetual resistance can eventually become permanent hardness. You can get to a point where your heart is so hard that you cannot spiritually perceive and discern and embrace the truth of God's word anymore. And Jesus is saying, don't let your heart get to that place. You have to trust Jesus with what you do understand and allow him to give you more understanding over time. Some of you see Jesus as irrelevant. Some of you see Jesus as a trend. A trend. Anybody uh, planning to watch the Super Bowl? Just show of hands here watching. Anybody planning? Okay. We're watching the Super Bowl this evening. By a round of applause, real quick here, wherever you're watching from, locations, how many people are rooting for the Rams? All right. We have a prayer room in the back uh, afterwards. We'll have counseling available. Uh, anybody rooting for the Bengals? That's pretty strong. I don't really care about uh, either team, to be honest with you. And just sidebar, just be patient. It's really, it is going to take me a while, you know what I mean, to Say Washington Commanders, it's going to take me just a while. Um, but I was at the barbershop, and I'm sitting in the barber chair, and I see a dude come in. And y'all, this is, this is Washington football territory. Washington Commanders. Got to get used to it. Territory, right? And my man comes in. He don't even have like a Dallas Cowboys hat on because he would have just been run out. You know what I mean? My man walks in with a Buffalo Bills hat and a Buffalo Bills sweatshirt. Now, okay, somebody's clapping. It was like one person, and there's a reason for this. Like, there's a reason. Like, some of y'all, you don't know football or whatever, but I'm old enough to remember when Buffalo Bills, it was a wave. Like, they were showing up in championships. They weren't 
walking away with nothing, but they were showing up to, to, to the Super Bowl and there was just this trend, this wave, this bandwagon of being a Buffalo Bills fan. And once that wave was over and people just all of a sudden weren't fans anymore, you got to be committed to be a Buffalo Bills fan. You got to be dedicated, right? Somebody, somebody texted me a picture after the 9 a.m. gathering, literally from the back of the room, somebody texted me a picture at NBC MoCo, and there was a dude in there actually with a whole Buffalo Bills beanie. I know he was like, I knew the Lord had me here today. <laughs> you hang on, my friend. Hang on. It's a wave, though. People were riding the wave. They were, they were riding the trend. But when it appeared that the Bills weren't really going to be successful, they hopped off the bandwagon. This is how some of us follow Jesus. You're fine following Jesus as long as you fit in. As long as it seems like things are sweet and things are, are up and to the right, and you're fine following Jesus like that, but the moment it requires you to stand out, you fold. And so look at what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, listen, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no roots in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I remember my first year playing like real tackle. If you could tell, I'm thinking about the Super Bowl. Um, but I remember my first year playing real tackle football, like not, not like in the neighborhood, not two-hand touch, not flag football, like real tackle football on a real football team. We were the Virginia Randolph Rams, blue and gold. I was so hyped. I remember holding my helmet and feeling the ear cushions that were buttoned, you know, in, in the place. I remember, uh, get, I don't know why I was so hyped about this. I remember being so hyped about getting a mouthpiece. I don't know why. Just seemed official. Remember boiling it, you know what I mean, to soften up a little bit. I remember stuffing the pads into the slots on the inside of my pants. I remember getting, you got to, you know, not 90s kid. You got, I remember getting these fresh Nike shark cleats. You know what I'm saying? Like I was ready. I was so excited. And at some point during the game, I remember running down the field as fast as I could. I remember feeling the wind on my face and hearing the crowds and everything. And then, Bam. That's exactly what happened. Everything went silent. I felt like God had called me home. Like it was an out-of-body experience, and I did not see it coming at all, but somebody hit me out of nowhere. And listen, the crazy thing is, I wasn't even on offense, y'all. I was on special teams defense. And I got hit with a crazy block. And I remember being so shocked and offended. And that was the day basketball became my favorite sport. <laughs> I didn't want to play no more. And I remember my dad saying, you signed up for football and you didn't expect to get hit? <laughs> and that's what happens to some people who initially decide to follow Jesus. 
Notice that this person receives the gospel with joy. It's an outward joy. And that's how all of us should receive the gospel, right? There should be joy. There should be enthusiasm. But for this group of people, what I think is actually happening beneath the surface in their heart, they're rejoicing in what they can get from Jesus. It's a superficial faith. They have no roots. The, thin, the soil is too thin. They're rejoicing in what they can get from Jesus, but they're not prepared to suffer with Jesus. They're not prepared to suffer because of Jesus. And so maybe you grew up in a Christian family and you made a decision to follow Jesus in your youth group or in your college ministry. And so for a while, you had this this kind of Christian bubble that you were able to, to live in or this supportive network of people who shared your beliefs and cheered you on. That was me. Maybe you made a private decision to follow Jesus as an adult, but you never really went public with your faith. You didn't tell your friends. You didn't really bring it up with your colleagues. But then they found out that you're a Christian. They found out what you claim to believe. Or now all of a sudden you're not in the Christian bubble anymore. You're surrounded by people who ridicule uh, religion and they mock Christianity. You feel alienated and embarrassed, maybe even mistreated or threatened, and you realize this isn't what you signed up for. You just signed up to become a better person. You just signed up to improve your life and to feel a spiritual connection. And even if you heard these scriptures at some point, they didn't really sink in when Jesus said, Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You may have heard it, but it didn't sink in when Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Not because you actually deserve it, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about. But falsely on my account, rejoice, he says, and be glad for your reward is great in heaven heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, some people, some people have a shallow faith. Some people see Jesus as, as just this trend or this kind of bandwagon. And then once the hype dies down, once the spiritual high goes away, they realize they haven't thoughtfully considered what following Jesus might actually cost. So they think they want to follow Jesus. But when suffering comes, they realize that they really don't. And that's what we see with the crowds all throughout the Gospels. They're following Jesus as a means to an end. Not because they love him and worship him, but because they want something from him. And over time, the crowds dwindle and they even turn against Jesus. Some of you see Jesus as irrelevant. Some of you, and you may not even realize it yet, you just see Jesus as a trend. Some of you, though, you see Jesus as an accessory. You see Jesus as an accessory. This is the divided heart. And here's what I mean by as seeing Jesus as, as an accessory. So you're getting ready to go out with your girls, you know. About to hang out with your friends, you're, you're getting dressed for the party or, the, or the, the business event, the soiree, whatever it is, right? And you're getting yourself together and then, and then you, you look in the mirror and you realize something's missing. 
And so you grab like that perfect accessory, that, that special piece that pulls it all together and adds a little bit of pop, right? And it's not that the accessory isn't important. In fact, it might even be the most valuable thing you have on. But this is the definition of an accessory. It's not necessary. It might be nice, but it's not necessary. It's just a nice add-on. And look at what Jesus says. In verse 18, he says, Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word... But they try to hold the word with the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Now, pause. It's not that riches are evil. But if we're not careful, they can become deceitful. They can deceive us into trusting them for security rather than God. They can deceive us into thinking that we always need more than we already have. They can deceive us into thinking we're better than other people or that our wealth is automatically a sign of God's favor. These are people who are trying to hold on to the word with the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. Those things enter in and they choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is a picture of worldliness. Worldliness is when you live like the things of this world are the most important things in life. You might not even say you believe that, but you live that way. Your heart becomes overcrowded with competing loves. Your life becomes distracted and dominated by what you want and what you have and what the world says is most important. And notice that the list in verse 19 is very broad. It mentions the deceitfulness of riches specifically, but also the cares of the world and desires for other things. Things that compete for and eventually crowd out your devotion to Jesus. Social status. Comfort. Political affiliation. Athletic achievement. Personal success. Sexuality. Cultural or national allegiance. Family expectations, our schedules and plans and goals. These are all these things that Jesus is talking about. And what often happens, listen, what often happens is that people think they're following Jesus, but what they've actually done is they've compartmentalized their life. Here's what I mean. You have your religious life over here. And you've given Jesus permission to reign over this stuff. So you do a little bit of church. You give a little bit of money, maybe even get involved in a little bit of ministry or in a group. But then over here is your real life. This is your everyday life. You got your religious life and you got your real life out in the real world. And you're in control over here. Jesus might be invited, but he's invited for for his advice. He's invited for that little bit of pop to add some, some spice in your life, right? Over here, he's he's more of a consultant, he's more of a self-help coach, but he's not king. 
Your heart is divided. Your life is compartmentalized. Jesus, you can have this, but I'm in control with all of this. And Jesus says that these things, they can even be good things, but these things can end up controlling our hearts and dominating our lives in a way that chokes the word and makes it unfruitful. Why? Because the gospel forces you to make a choice. You cannot serve two masters. can't serve two masters. At some point, there will be a conflict of interest between Jesus and all of these things that are crowding your life. And it's not that you're a terrible person. It's not that you're disinterested in spiritual things. It's just that the things of this world have such a grip on your heart that they control your life instead of Jesus. So some of you for Jesus is... He's irrelevant, or he's a trend, or, or he's an accessory. But for those who have been born again, for those who are Christians, Jesus is king. Amen. He is king. This is the humble heart that receives the word, verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil, the, the receptive humble hearts, are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit and listen, in Palestine, the yield would usually be like seven, eightfold. Jesus is saying, this right here is supernatural harvest. This is super, this is miraculous fruit. It's 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. In other words, this is a harvest. This is a fruit that you cannot produce in your own human energy and ability. This is something that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. Jesus says, this is what I do in the heart of somebody who humbles themselves before my word, who trusts me enough to, to obey and to submit to my word, even when they don't fully understand. Amen. It changes your life. Now, I want to show you how powerful and gracious God is. Because this isn't a word meant to condemn you, to shame you. Let me show you how gracious God is. Because I, I don't know about you, maybe it's just me, maybe this is a little bit sacrilegious, but when I read this parable, sometimes I think Jesus is a terrible farmer. Like, Jesus, why are you just out here just recklessly scattering seed? Like, if we were farming consultants, we'd be like, Jesus, we could, we could be a little bit more efficient. You know what I mean? You don't need seed on the path and in the thorns and, like, everywhere. Like, what are we, Jesus, what are we doing? Well, see, Jesus sees some things that we don't see. He knows some things that sometimes we forget. Jesus knows that bad soil can become good soil. That as long as you have breath in your lungs, you have an opportunity. You have an opportunity to humble yourself and receive the redemptive work and the radical power of Jesus. Because some of you realize that you're in one of these first three categories. 
And some of you are thinking about people that you love who are one of those three categories and you've been praying for them and you, you're wanting them to change. I got specific people in my mind that I've been praying for as I'm reading this text and studying this text. You want to see them change and you wonder, will it ever happen? Will they ever humble themselves? Will they ever respond in faith to the gospel? Desperately want them to come to know Jesus as King. So is there any hope for the hard heart? The person who sees Jesus as irrelevant will ask the Apostle Paul. There is no harder heart in the whole New Testament than the Apostle Paul, who absolutely hated Jesus, hated Christians, had them executed and tortured, chased them from city to city. And he has this encounter with Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And he is literally physically humbled down to the ground. And his life is radically changed. He's given a new name and a new identity and a new purpose. Is there any hope for the superficial heart? For the person who sees Jesus as merely a trend, a wave? Well, ask Peter. Like, Peter was the first dude to preach Acts chapter 2. Peter was about that life. He's cutting off soldiers' ears, right, when they're pulling up on Jesus. Like, Peter is with Jesus. And then when Jesus gets arrested and he's getting ready to be crucified, and now attention turns to Peter and the pressure is on and he feels the heat of persecution coming his way, he folds. He denies Jesus, not one time, not two times, but three times he denies Jesus. The trend has passed. I'm getting off the bandwagon. And when Jesus rises again and comes to Peter, we expect condemnation. What does Jesus do? He's so gracious. He's gracious. Peter has an encounter that changes his life. Like I said, he ends up preaching the first sermon. Is there any hope for the divided heart, the person who sees Jesus as merely an accessory? Well, ask Zacchaeus. I mean, here's a man who has competing loves, like he knows about the kingdom of God, but he's given himself to his own wealth. He's a tax collector. He, he rips off his own people. And then he has an encounter with Jesus and everything changes. And some of you are like, all right, well, that happened before Zacchaeus was a follower of Jesus. Okay, well, ask James and John, who are literally with Jesus. They are, they are following Jesus. And Jesus asked them the question that every single one of us wants Jesus to ask us. What do you want me to do for you? And what do they answer with? I want the seat at your right hand. What are they saying? They're saying, God, I want your glory, but I want my glory too. The thorn is trying to choke out the seed. And Jesus is gracious and he's patient. He is patient with their divided, idolatrous hearts. It takes them a while. But through their encounter with Jesus, their hearts, their lives changed. Listen, here's, here's why. Here's why. I love this illustration. We'll end with this. G. Campbell Morgan 
talked about how he visited a a cemetery in Italy and he noticed a huge marble slab right in the center of the cemetery. Like this massive, thick, like marble slab. And yet, story goes, somehow like a hundred years earlier, an acorn had fallen into the open grave before they covered it over. That small acorn grew and grew until one day it broke through the surface and cracked the marble slab. Literally an oak tree came up out of this grave, broke the marble slab in two, and G. Campbell Morgan is looking at this, this oak tree. That's the power of a seed. Like that is the power that is at work in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work through his word. That God can take our sinful, rebellious, resistant hearts. And as we see his glory revealed in the gospel and humble ourselves, he can change our hearts and he can bring life out of what has been death. He can bring soft fruitfulness out of what has been hard. And this is not just a parable about what Jesus can do in the human heart. This is a parable about what Jesus has done in history. Because Jesus didn't just come sowing the word. Jesus came sowing himself. Jesus came literally sowing his body into the ground. God, the son of man, taking on human flesh, allowing himself to be crucified and to be buried in the soil. And then he bore fruit three days later. And it was as if he broke through this marble slab to say that death cannot even stop the power and the plan of God. And Jesus rose from the grave. He resurrected so that you and I could have eternal life, so that you and I could be made new. But that's not it because the news gets even gooder than that. It's because he rose from the grave as the first fruits of what was to come. So that there's not just a harvest in our hearts. We're not just given new hearts. But one day Jesus is coming back and the dead in Christ shall rise. And those who are laying in the ground will one day be resurrected and given glorified bodies. And Jesus himself will make all things new. Not just our hearts, but the entire universe as the kingdom of God becomes the dwelling place here on earth for us to enjoy for all of eternity. So this is good news for you. And whether you're here and you need to make a decision for the first time to put your trust in Jesus, Jesus is inviting you. Whatever the condition of your heart, you're hearing the word. Which means he's given you an opportunity to say, Jesus, I need you to change me. I want to be forgiven. I want to have a relationship with you. And I want this life in you. And I want you to be king, not just over my religious life. I want you to be king over all of my life. Why? Because you are king of kings and you are Lord of lords. Jesus, I want to humble myself before you and receive your word. If that's you here or wherever you're watching from, like Jesus says, now is that time for you. I know you don't understand everything. The disciples didn't understand everything. Everything. He said, oh, you have little faith. 
So come to him with little faith. Trust him enough based on what you do know. But maybe you're a follower of Jesus and you're not making a first time decision, but maybe there are some things in your life, some areas of your life where you resonate even with some of these soils. There's just some areas of your life where the Holy Spirit has been pressing in on your heart. Well, there's hope for you and there's grace for you. It's grace for me. Because Jesus promises that the work that he began in you, he will bring it to completion. The seed of the word that has been implanted in you, it will bear fruit for his glory. So he's not done with you. Man, praise God. Praise God. No matter who we are, where we've been, what we've struggled with, And God in his grace, he gives us an opportunity to not just hear his word, but to humble ourselves and to enter into abundant life as those who gladly live in his kingdom now and for all eternity. I want to lead us in prayer as we close. Father, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, I really, I mean, I feel like I could preach the gospel for 24 hours. It is such good news, not just because I get to stand in a pulpit and preach it, but because, Lord, I get to live in the fruit of it. I get to live, God, with you. I get to live, God, in your kingdom, under your authority, your loving, benevolent, good, wise leadership. God, I get to know you as my father. I get to serve you as my king. And Lord, I know that resonates with so many of us who are listening to this right now, that it is our joy, it is our joy. It's our joy to humble ourselves before you. It's our joy to worship you. It's our joy to follow you and yield to you, God. But there's areas where we need your help. And so would you help us. And God, I pray for that person who walked in or logged on, not knowing you, not exactly sure what to expect, but God, you've been working in their heart. I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them, Lord. Would you, even now, Lord, would you lead them to just cry out to you, God? God, as they cry out to you, Lord, as they ask you, God, for forgiveness, as they ask you, God, to change them, Lord, as they humble themselves before you and yield and surrender and trust Jesus, who he is and what he's done, Lord, I pray. Oh, God, I pray that that seed would find good soil and it would take root and it would bear fruit. All to the glory of your wonderful name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.